So as they make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. And we have it marked for you at that passage. And keep the Bible, bring it back with you each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Today, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you are a child of God because you came to Him by receiving the gift of salvation offered in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that means you are part of what the Bible calls the church, the body of Christ. Colossians chapter 1 simply says the church is His, his body. Everyone who belongs to Christ is part of His body, something so important to Him that the Bible says Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The body of Christ is sometimes referred to as the universal church because it's not confined to one location and it's comprised of all believers of whatever nationality or ethnicity or race or denomination. And that means, as you've heard me say, I don't think you have to be a Baptist to go to to heaven. But I usually add, why take a chance? (laughs) Seriously, if, if we are born again, we are part of the universal body of Christ. But the Bible teaches something else that's very important about the church, the body of Christ, and that is those who are part of the universal church are to be united in a local church. That is a a gathering of believers in a particular location, like Trenton. Of the 114 uses of the Greek word ekklesia in the New Testament that's translated church, 99 of those refer to the local expression of the body of Christ. Listen to what Scripture says about the local church. The Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and said, I'm writing you these instructions so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is God's household or God's family, and it's the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, those are heady titles, and the context of that passage makes clear that it's referring not to the universal body of Christ, but to her local expression. In this case, the local church in the city of Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor. And I say that because the instructions to which Paul refers are those that go back to the prior chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And there we find how worship is to be conducted when the church gathers. And then as you go into chapter 3, we have the qualifications for leaders in the local body of Christ, pastors and deacons. And then he says what we had on the, the screen... He says, I wrote you these instructions, instructions about how life in the local body is supposed to to take place so that you will know how things are to be done in God's family, the church, the pillar, and the foundation of the truth. Now this elevated view of the local church is a far cry from the loose understanding of the church that so many American Christians have come to embrace. It's not uncommon for people to try to define a church as simply anywhere where two or three are gathered together. But that's a wholly inadequate and it's a misapplication of a passage of of Scripture. Now, I'm not disparaging a small church, but it's not impossible to have a New Testament church as Scripture assumes because at least one pastor is there. 
but it's usually more than one in the Bible, and at least one deacon, but that's also plural in the Bible. And presumably, they're leading at least one person. So if you do the math, you probably got about five is probably about the minimum if you want to put a number on it. But the two or three in the Bible is not about defining a church in any case. The phrase where two or three are gathered in my name comes from Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus has just described the process for maintaining purity in the local church, and he says if someone is in unrepentant sin, then the process will involve, if they, li- if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, Jesus says. Now notice that there are the two or three witnesses, and then there is the church in that verse. So the two or three in the church are not the same thing. And further, a few verses later, Jesus says the famous but famously misused words, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. In the context, it's not saying two or three gathered is a church, but rather when this process that I, Jesus, have given is followed, it is one that I am personally involved with. Where the two or three witnesses do their job, I, Jesus, approve of it, and I am with them and against the unrepentant one. So it's a warning. Follow this process in the purity of of the church. So I just suggest we don't use passages like that to define what the church is. And I rehearse all of that because tomorrow starts a new year, and at the beginning of each year, I take a few weeks to remind this local body regarding our privileges and responsibilities as an expression of the body of Christ in this community. And I call these first-of-the-year messages the state of the church. And they're designed to recalibrate our hearts and our minds to the blessed task to which the Lord has called us together as His church. So you see the title at the top of the outline that you received and now on the screen. It says, Resolved to be the church. In sum, that is what I recommend your top New Year's resolution be. That you will play your part so that we collectively can be the church as Christ intends. Now, I'm devoting two messages to that theme this week and next because other than our salvation, there is nothing more important for our spiritual growth than understanding our role as members of the local body of Christ. We will pick up our series in the book of Psalms at the end of this month because we have the commissioning service in two weeks that Pastor Larry mentioned, and we have Sanctity of Life on the 21st and then on the 28th we will get back to the psalm series. Some years ago, Uber blogger and author Tim Challies wrote this. The more I see our world falling apart with wars and rumors of wars, with terrorism and violence, and with people becoming ever more embittered against God, the more I have come to believe that the church of Jesus Christ is the hope for our world. The church is not God's plan B for the world. It is His plan A. And there's no backup, no substitute. The church is the hope for our world. And I love the church. 
I fear that I love her with only the smallest fraction of the passion with which our Lord loved her. Yet I know that my affection is pleasing to Him, and I know that He is the one who has placed this love in my heart. The church is the hope for our world, and it seems to me that the church can only bring to the world the hope she possesses if she, is if she is strong and healthy. All around us, we see people proclaiming news of the church's illness and offering both diagnosis and cure. Yet most of these cures are not working because they are not drawn from Scripture. Bookshelves at Christian bookstores are groaning under the weight of books about how to make churches bigger, stronger, and more appealing to unbelievers. Some authors have interviewed new believers to ask what drew them to the church. Others have turned to hardened unbelievers to ask what might draw them to the church. I've read many of these books, probably too many, and it seems that none of them hold the answers. For while churches are springing up all over our continent, the number of churchgoers continues to decline. Furthermore, the theology of the average churchgoer continues to worsen as new and exciting teachings are introduced to the church, many of which have no biblical basis. But if the church is God's plan A, and I believe that it is, to bring hope to the world, we need to get church right. So today we begin a two-part mini-series on the local body of Christ. Today, looking at what it is and what it does. Next week, looking at some specific goals for our local church to pursue together in the coming year. Let's bow down and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you again for bringing us to the precipice of a new year. Thank you for sustaining us this last year. We look forward to your work, whatever that is, in us and through us in the year to come. Thank you for these moments to be able to look at your word together and to rethink the priority of your church and your mission that it carries out in your world. Lord, may we leave this place and over the next few weeks resolved indeed to prioritize you and the work you are doing through your church. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In your outline that you should have received when you came in, I say first of all we want to look at what a church is. Now, the passage to which I've asked you to turn is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's written to a local body of Christ in the city of Corinth, like we are an expression of the body of Christ in Trenton. It refers to the interaction of its members, which could only occur when they were in proximity to one another. Now, some of you took Dr. Combs' class on 1 Corinthians some time back, and I have his syllabus which I've used extensively for this message, so you can rest assured that what I'm saying is accurate since if you don't trust me, you at least can trust Dr. Combs. <laughs> and the teaching that the Apostle Paul who wrote this lays out for the Corinthian church and by extension for us is given in the context of Paul having to correct the many problems that this church had, including their misuse of spiritual gifts. As you read 1 Corinthians, it addresses problems throughout. Problems of factions within the church. Toleration of known and public and shameful sin on the part of one of its members. Handling disputes with each other in the civil courts rather than as brothers and sisters. Issues of divorce and remarriage. And for four chapters, from chapter 8 through chapter 11, matters of corporate worship 
And now, beginning in chapter 12 and on through chapter 14, the matter of spiritual gifts in the local church. The Corinthians, like today's Pentecostals, which most of you know I was raised in, were and are infatuated with speaking in tongues, which is why an entire chapter is devoted to that issue in chapter 14. The Corinthians and today's Pentecostals make speaking in tongues an elevated gift that everyone is to have and even pursue. But what is said in chapter 12 is designed to refute the idea that any particular gift, including tongues, is one that should be pursued over others. Now, I'm hampered in this message by the allusion to these verses, in these verses to things like tongues and miraculous gifts of the first century, and I simply cannot take time here to discuss those in any detail. However, I do that in our class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, which we offer again this coming fall. And I devote in that some teaching about what the Bible says regarding tongues. And if you're interested in that whole topic of miraculous gifts uh, and how that functioned in the first century church, we have a book in our resource center called To Be Continued with a question mark. To Be Continued by Sam Waldron. And so I recommend that to you. We also have another very small booklet by John Whitcomb, which is very helpful on miracles and their place in biblical history. But very briefly, the Corinthians and today's Pentecostals believe that speaking in tongues is a heavenly language, not a human language. But using the, the Bible's definition, I'm speaking in a tongue now called English. Speaking in tongues was always a known language that people understood, as is clearly seen in Acts chapter 2 when it first occurred. Here's what Acts chapter 2 says. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Each one heard their own language being spoken. So speaking in tongues was always a human language that was understood by hearers, but the Corinthians had made it something else, and they elevated it as a priority gift. And chapter 12 seeks to correct that misunderstanding. I'll quickly explain the passage that I asked Pastor Larry to read earlier in verses 1 through 11, and then focus on what the rest of the chapter teaches about life in the body of Christ. Verse 1 says, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. So he's saying, In your former life as worshipers in the local pagan temple, in Corinth, you were misguided and you were profoundly led astray, but your experience as Christians is not like that, because as God's mouthpiece, I, the Apostle Paul, am going to ensure that you know the truth, in this case, the truth about spiritual gifts. And you have the misconception that what makes you spiritual is a particular gift, speaking in a heavenly language. But there is something else that really makes one spiritual. Here is the foundation of all true spirituality in verse number 3. I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So rather than distinguishing between believers based on whether they have a particular gift like the tongues that you misuse, Paul's telling them, 
The main and foundational distinction you should make is not among believers based on whether or not they speak in tongues, but rather on whether or not they belong to Christ. As Paul wrote elsewhere, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. The most important matter is what one confesses about Jesus, not what spiritual gift one has. Because, in fact, there is a diversity of those gifts. And verses 4 through 11 teach that very thing. So verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, verse 4 in Greek, from which your New Testament was translated into English, actually has a word in verse 4, before there are different kinds of gifts. It's the word but, or sometimes translated now. Now there are different kinds of gifts, or but there are different kinds of gifts. That is, it's true that all who profess Christ are one, and that's what matters most, your confession about Christ, but that does not negate the fact that there's a diversity within that unity. And notice that each of these verses, 4, 5, and 6, starts the same way. There are different kinds. But then each is followed by the words, the same. There's a difference in the body, but within unity, the same. And each mention of the same includes mention of one of the three persons of the Trinity, the same Spirit, the same Lord, that is, Jesus Christ, and the same God, the Father. And so this unity of believers, but diversity among them, is seen in the nature of God Himself, and it's reflected in the way that God has composed and designed His church. So verse 7, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Every believer has at least one gift but perhaps more than one, by which God may well have naturally endowed you. But now that you are a Christian, the Spirit of God redirects its use to higher purposes, not for personal benefit, but for the benefit of others, the common good. Verses 8 through 10 give a list of different gifts, but these are just a partial list. As in all of the places in the Bible that present gifts, in Romans chapter 12, in Ephesians chapter 4, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and here in 1 Corinthians 12, none of the lists match, so none of them are intended to be exhaustive, but representative, giving examples of the diversity of gifts. And the truth is, we don't even know what some of them are. For example, the message of wisdom, the message of knowledge, we kind of have to guess as to what that was and how it functioned. But you need not burden yourself with that because the point is not to identify the particulars as much as to show that there is way more in the church than just tongues and all of the gifts that God has given to His people are important for the common good. It's interesting, though, that in this list in verses 8 through 10, and then there's another list given at the bottom of the passage down in, in verse 28, in both of those, tongues is listed last. Undoubtedly by Paul to de-emphasize in the minds of the Corinthians the way that they had elevated it above other gifts. 
And all that's been said in verses 1 through 10 of 1 Corinthians 12 is summarized in verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Each person, each Christian has received at least one gift, and these gifts come from the Holy Spirit who sovereignly distributes them according to what He determines is needed for the up and ed- upbuilding and edification of the church. Now, one problem with dividing, providing an outline for our messages is that people keep track of proportionality between time spent and blanks remaining. So I've been at it for a while. You filled in only one of 13 blanks. And I'm sure that some of you have been experiencing a nervous twitch for a while now. But based on that foundation, we can go much quicker through the rest because verse 12 through the end of the chapter is about how the illustration of the body demonstrates the truths that have been established already. And then we'll make practical application of those in the last half of the outline. So I say, a church is a body that is a unity. A unity. Verse 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Just as a human body has limbs and organs, and despite their number and their differences, they are still one body. So also then, Christ's body has many limbs and organs, and despite their number and differences, they make up, we make up one body. And we have this unity because we all have the same spirit. Verse 13. For, because... We were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. To baptize is to immerse or initiate, as we do with water baptism, when one is initiated into the local body as a member. The Holy Spirit initiates us in the universal body of Christ at the moment we are saved. At the moment of salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit, all of us. And so at the end of verse 13, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. As a result of being saved, we experience the benefits and blessing of the Spirit, including spiritual gifts. And this comes about because at the same time that we were placed into the body of Christ, we are also indwelt by that same Spirit. And so the church is a body... And it's a body that is a unity and also a body that's diverse. Verse 14, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And all of the parts of the physical and spiritual body are necessary, says verses 15 through 20, saying that each of the various parts is integral to the whole, the foot, the hand, the ear, the eye. But as important as all are, none is more important. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has designed it just as he wants it to be. Verse 18, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. 
And if any of those parts is missing, then the body, spiritual and physical, does not function as it should. Verse 19, if they were all one part, where would the body be? And verse 20 summarizes the fact that the body is diverse, a diversity, many parts, but a unity, one body. And so the church is, body is indeed a unity. It is also diverse. And it is, I say in the outline, interconnected. Verse 21 teaches that no part of the body is expendable. And verse 22 says that every part is indispensable, even those that may seem, it says, weaker. But like internal organs to the body, they are as important as any other part. Verses 23 and 24 say that we cover parts of our body, and we do that appropriately. But even those private parts have special and important function, and we treat them with respect by the very fact that we cover them. Or, I might add, used to back when culture had not lost its collective mind. And so the church body is a unity. It is diverse. It's interconnected. And it is compassionate. Compassionate. All of this means, according to verses 25 and 26, that every part of the body is important. And when they do not function as designed, then the entire body is harmed. We are interdependent because interconnected. Verse 25, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. If one part of the body suffers, it affects the whole body. So if you have an ailment in one part of your body, if you have a toothache, for example, and if one part of the body is admired, you have a beautiful smile, it may make up for a deficiency in another part of the body is the idea. So it is in the body of Christ. So we have in the church body this unity, diversity, interconnectedness, compassion for one another, each member of the body. And finally, the church body is dependent. Verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So no Christian can dismiss his or herself from responsibility to the body. Some have more important responsibility, but none is unimportant. You see the importance of some persons within the body of Christ and their attendant gifts with the first three that are mentioned in verse 28. Apostles, verse 28, who established the church. Prophets, who could speak direct revelation from God. And teachers, who take the product of the apostles and, products and prophets' revelation and they dispense it in an understandable way to the church. James chapter 3 and verse 1 says that not all of you should seek to be teachers, for teachers will be judged with stricter judgment. And God has given teachers, and it is, a, it is a serious responsibility. And we take it seriously, and I just pause to say that, to say the body authorizes those who will be their teachers. And sometimes you get people who come into the body and seek to insinuate themselves as teachers. 
The Bible warns about such. From time to time, we have to, to deal with that. But it is a gift to protect the body, shepherd the flock, and nurture it in sound, in sound doctrine. So some have these responsibilities as indicated in the apostles and the prophets and the teachers. Notice that buried in the middle of verse 28, in the middle of verse 28, is helping. It's just a generic term for the Greek word that's translated helping is the Greek word translated elsewhere, serving or ministering. Service of all types. Now again, I point out that tongues is last in this list. And so not something that all had to do or were somehow incomplete without. And then verse 31 says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. The greater gifts have been listed in verse 28 as first, second, third, apostles, prophets, teachers. Now why are those gifts greater? Not because the people are greater, but because of what those gifts do for the body. They benefit everyone. So Corinthians, instead of elevating a supposed special God language that no one can understand and so benefits only you, prioritize those things that benefit everyone and seek to play your role, whatever it is, for building up others. Now that is what a church body is. Now I'd like to take time to apply that to what a church, as I say in the outline, does. That's what a church body is, what a church does. So practically, what kinds of things does the Bible tell us to do in order to carry out the mutuality of the local body, the church? What things are required of us if we're going to function as the church with each member of the body performing its function for the benefit of, of the whole? And I have five of these in your outline. First, the church body shows up. It attends. Now that ought to go without saying. And the problem with saying it is you're saying it to people who are here. <laughs> so there are some, and it's actually quite a large number, it's a somewhat shocking number of people who on any given Sunday and Lord's Day are not here. Now, we all know that there are reasons for that. We all know that we are providentially hindered at times. We're sick. Some of us have special circumstances in our homes. We're caring for a loved one or something like that. There are special circumstances. Of course, I'm not seeking to heap guilt on anyone in those circumstances. And I'm actually, with all of these things that I'm going to lay out, not seeking to heap guilt at all. I'm trying to instruct, encourage, urge. But friends, what I really want us to see is that these things that the Bible tells us to do are all because of what we've been given in the Lord Jesus. And so they should not have to be compelled. We should, all of us, desire to do these things. And one of those is to come together regularly as God's people the body attends the Bible speaks of the necessity of being together do not give up meeting together now interestingly the reason given for this is not so that you can hear the sermon 
The verse just before that and the phrase after it say this, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. Notice the emphasis on mutuality, on one another, relationship as a key issue in our gathering for the various functions of the body. So how does that play out in the lives of our members? How does that play out in, in your life? If you are a take it or leave it, every other Sunday, every third, every fourth week or fourth month, and I'm not making that up, I think you can see that we've, we've then, if we take that approach, we've missed body life somehow, right? If you think church is information and therefore the sermon, then the singing part you can kind of take or leave. Even if you're here for the singing part, or here for all of the, the singing part, you know, it's not, the, it's not the main event. The main event is for a guy to come up and, and talk. That's what many of us have come to have come to believe, and as important as that is, all of the aspects of our worship are given by God and are for the carrying out of our mission and mutually building one another up, including the singing. Here's what the Bible says about our singing together. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Notice when we sing, we speak to one another. So last week I said, hey, we're going to sing Joy to the World loud. But you know, it's not just Joy to the World we sing loud. We sing Praise to the Lord loud. Part of the reason we sing Praise to the Lord loudly every Lord's Day is because we are Building one another. This is a one another thing that we do. And by the way, if you don't do that, you are still communicating. If you don't communicate by your song and how much you value that and the Christ about whom we are singing, you're communicating something very important. I don't really care that much about this. Especially if the people who know you know that you really can get loud when you want to. Can get loud at home, can get loud at the ball game. But when it comes to church, I mumble. And friends, in the New Testament, you see body life in one another passages used 60 times. The Greek word alelo, translated one another. Forgive one another, accept one another, bear one another's burdens, love one another, serve one another. On and on it goes. Body life, mutuality. So you don't skip the singing so long as you make it in time for the sermon. Have some of us taken the sermon thing so far as to think church can just as easily be achieved by a recording or live stream? Shout out to those watching on live stream. And I'm thankful that we have live stream. Really, there are those providential times when you, you can't come. 
And we have people who are shut in. And so I'm thankful that they can participate in that way. But they know, and they have told me, it's not like being there. And biblically, it's not the same, it's not the same thing, friends. I think too many of us have bought into the idea that, of a kind of sacramental idea. I come, I put, if I come, I put in my time, and I leave. There's no body. There's no body life. Our bylaws, as I read at our last family meeting, for those of you who were able to attend that, have attendance requirements. That if someone is gone for a month, for example, we, the leadership, in our bylaws, have a responsibility to try to track down, hey, is everything okay? We need to know as well who is part of this body for the planning purposes that I'm going to talk about next week. I mean, who's in and who's not? Who's here and who's not? And one way you know that is by who shows up every week as providentially they're able. Now, I'm going to be sending emails this coming week, one each day, Monday through Friday, with a resolution for each of those days. On Friday, I'll send the one about attending, and the subject line will say, every single Lord's Day. And it's to urge us to get in that mindset going into this year, every single Lord's Day, unless providentially hindered, and make that resolution at the beginning of the, of the year. And I hope you'll resolve to do that in 2024. And so a church body attends. It also serves. I trust you see service very clearly from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we use what God has given for the purpose for which He gave it, to carry out His work through His church. Now I will send a to-do item as one of those five emails this week that focuses on service, but for now, I encourage you to resolve in this coming year, 2024, to serve the Lord in His church to the best of your God-given ability. And that email will give you some ways to do that. So a church body attends, a church body serves, and she gives. Next week, I will, as I have for the last several years, give some statistics on our giving per household without any names, as I do not see names of who gives and who does not uh, in our church. But giving is commanded in Scripture, and each of us is to do, as the Bible says, on the first day of the week. That would be the Lord's Day. Do I have that? On the first day of the week, that would be the Lord's Day Sunday. Each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So it's going to be different amounts for different people in keeping with your, with your income. It's also not a legalistic matter. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, voluntarily doing this because we love the Lord and what He is doing through His church in His world. So you'll get an email this week reminding about that resolution. A church body, a congregation attends, it, it serves, it gives, and prays. We pray... We pray for our needs, of course. We pray and praise God in those prayers. But one of the things the Bible tells us to do is, James chapter 5, pray for each other. But we can only do that intelligently if we know 
each other. Now, I have ordered 100 copies of a little book, a little booklet, really, called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. We have those 100 copies in our resource center. I recommend that book for you to help you in your, in your prayer life. This week, one of the emails will be about prayer. And I will send some very simple suggestions for how to structure your prayer time, but I encourage you to get that small book as well. Enjoy your prayer life. As a congregation, a church body, it attends, it serves, gives, prays. Last but certainly not least, she reads, she studies, takes in the Word. And so we commit, we resolve to reading the Word regularly. Now, if you're not able to do it daily, you've not sinned. This is the fear that sh strikes the heart of everybody at the beginning of the new year. Because for 10 years in a row, you've said, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. And you made it to February and Leviticus. And then that was it. <laughs> and so you felt guilty now for 10 months. And now I'm making you feel guilty again. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to read the Bible every day. As a matter of fact, when the Bible was written, most people didn't have a Bible. But we would all agree that it's spiritual nourishment for your soul. And to read it as regularly as you, as you can. And so, an email going out tomorrow with some resources for you to help you have a daily Bible reading plan and some devotionals for each day as well. Brothers and sisters, did you all know that our church has a church covenant? That a church is a group of people that have come to the Lord Jesus Christ and have covenanted together to carry out His work together. In our Newcomer's Orientation booklet, almost all of you have taken our Newcomer's Orientation. It's a requirement for becoming a member in our, our church. And so unless you miss that particular session, the final session of the orientation in the notebook, we have the church covenant, and you actually sign when you join our church, our church covenant. I'd like to take just my final moments to read that to you. Our church covenant says, Having been led by the Holy Spirit to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the public confession of our faith, having been immersed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God and this assembly joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. And then it goes on to say what we do. I'm going to read it. But the idea there is that someone has made a profession of faith. We've heard that profession. That they have been baptized. And then when they join, when they unite with us, this is what we're agreeing to. This is what we're covenanting together. We purpose, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to attend its services regularly, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine to give it a sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin, to give faithfully of time and talent in its activities, to contribute cheerfully and regularly as God has prepared us, to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. We also purpose to maintain family and private devotions, 
to train our children according to the Word of God, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our conduct, to avoid all gossip, backbiting, and unrighteous anger, to abstain from all forms of activity which is dishonor our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to give Him the preeminence in all things. We further purpose to encourage one another in the blessed hope of our Lord's return, to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to seek it without delay. What a beautiful statement. I can say that because I didn't write it. It has been a church covenant in Baptist churches for about 200 years. And it's something that it's easy for us to forget. And so at the beginning of this year, I remind myself and I remind you, brothers and sisters, we are covenanted together. So attending is important. Praying is important. Giving is important. Serving is important. Reading God's Word is important. And I want to, at the beginning of this year, remind us of that so that together, what I lay out next week, we will be able to move forward and advance in for the Lord's work through this church. Here's your take-home truth. The church is a unified body of diverse members. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we thank you for bringing us to the beginning of this new year. Lord, we thank you for giving us in your word how you have designed the body, the, the local expression of the body of Christ in a particular location like here in Trenton, how you have designed it to interact, that you have gifted each and every one of us with at least one gift to be used for your purposes. And Lord, in all of this, there's this built-in mutuality and interdependence that requires that we are in relationship with one another, that we know one another, so that we can do all of the one another passages that you have given in your word. And so, Lord, we must confess that far too many of us have taken a simple sacramental approach to your church. It's attend, it's do the thing, and then it's leave. That, Lord, your body is more dynamic than that. The one another's are more involved than that. And we have covenanted together to do that. And so we ask you in this coming year to form changes within us, changes within our priorities, changes within our schedules that show the importance that we attach to the church for which you gave your life and through which you are carrying out your mission. May 2024 be the best year that this church has ever seen. But Lord, come what may, we trust you because we know that you gave your life for us and so we entrust our lives to you. We will give you the glory and the honor for all that you accomplish in and through us. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.